This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through music, presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year, traversing all genres of music from Baroque to post-rock. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au. There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women working in the music and creative industries. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host. And for the next four episodes of Control, I'm thrilled to be collaborating with Melbourne Recital Centre. I'll be chatting with artist-in-residence Mindy Meng Wang, plus award-winning composer and artist Deborah Cheatham. But in this episode, we go behind the scenes to chat to the music program manager, Elle Chantry. Originally from Perth, Elle has worked in the arts sector for more than 15 years across music programming, event management and arts policy. She's worked for organisations such as City of Melbourne, Creative Partnerships Australia, Gertrude Street Projection Festival and the West Australian Department of Culture and the Arts. In this conversation, I ask Elle how she approaches creating the Melbourne Recital Centre program, how she navigates presenting contemporary music in a room originally designed for classical concerts, her time working in Norway, and much more. This is Elle Chantry in Control. Elle, welcome to the Control podcast. Great to see you. Thank you, Chelsea. You too. Really excited to chat to you about your role in programming at Melbourne Recital Centre and your career. But firstly, I wanted to ask you about the Recital Centre. It was architecturally designed to be a prestige home for classical music. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of contemporary music within the space? Yeah, sure. It's, it's the most incredible space. And you're right, it was designed for classical music and that's what it has done really well for a very long time. It's presented some contemporary music from the beginning. It had, you know, jazz ensembles and small scale groups, but the PA system that was in there just wasn't quite appropriate for the venue or for getting larger contemporary amplified music. So, you know, when you speak about contemporary, I guess what you're asking there is about amplified music more so. So it's been a kind of a journey over a little while and most of it, it comes down to a few things. One, you know, it had to build an audience in that space. There's so many incredible contemporary live music venues in Victoria, as we know. Mm. Um, and so entering that space, the venue had to kind of understand what its purpose would be and where it would fit within that market. It also had to have a really good sound system, as we just said, the PA. So that actually took time and investment and a lot of tweaking. And we still continue to tweak that system. But maybe only, probably only about five years ago, did the system get into a place that was really good to present contemporary live music, mm. which made it possible, of course. And yeah, and then actually just figuring out that market and who we are and where we sit in there. So it's been a fairly 
the venue's been around for just over, I think it's 14 years now. And yeah, we're coming quite strong into contemporary. And now we present 50% of what we present is, you know, contemporary music, I would say. Um, it's still a really important space for classical music presentation, of course, because there's not as many venues in the market for it. But it's also incredible for contemporary, definitely for a market, you know, the sit down concert. There's a lot of value there in the contemporary space to have a venue like this. So it's been a really fun journey getting it to kind of to push the limits of both rooms, the hall and the salon. And we keep kind of pushing it and trying to see what else we can do in there. But the idea of the whole venue is to be a music center for, you know, a hall for all kinds of music. So how do you navigate that from a programming point of view? Are there some genres or artists that you think just wouldn't suit that sound system and that room? Yeah, it's like I'm always on two sides of the fence with this. Sometimes I want to push that space and just let's see how we go. Let's put something in there completely unexpected and see what we can do. Um, And then on the flip side, I'm always like, well, this is a beautiful room for this. So why don't we just, you know, showcase, you know, a vocal ensemble or something in there because it's going to sound incredible. I think it's important to do both really. What is the purpose of bringing that artist into this venue when you have places like, you know, the Forum or the Corner that are going to sound incredible because that's what they do every night of the week. It's kind of like a different show. It has to be kind of a different experience. So, you know, you can bring, we've had hip hop, you know, like Baker Boy or somebody in there that, you know, is a live kind of jump up and down act. And the audience has stood up and been part of it and it's been fabulous, but it's kind of a different presentation, right? It's also, we're an all ages venue. So there's lots of kids in there that could come that couldn't go to the corner or the forum. Mm. So it brings something else to the space, um, you know, bringing a different type of act. I haven't quite yet had like a metal act in there, but um, that's <laughs> maybe, you know, it's on the list. I want to do something with that. But we've pushed it almost with all genres. Really, really loud. Electronic music works really well too. Yeah, lots of different things in there. Can you talk us through how you put a program together and what some of the considerations might be? Is there kind of a narrative or an arc or a theme that you're working with? Do you think of it in seasons? Do you have some sort of overview, strategic plan of approaching it? Yeah, so on a very basic level, we get set a budget at the beginning of the year of how many shows and need to present and within that that kind of is broken down to what type of show as simple as like is it a classical show or a contemporary show but then the actual arc and thematics that we put into it we really do look at seasons at the moment this is something MRC used to do an annual program which <laughs> worked really well for you know the classical groups who were booked a year out in advance but not so good for the contemporary industry that's a bit more responsive maybe locking in a show three months out, mm. out from when it's actually going to go on So now, you know, and in this market, of course, where we didn't know what was going on, we're really looking seasonally. And this is always fed into kind of the programming is what's going on within the context of the year you're programming as to what fits where, you know, summer is a great time for like big, exciting things to be out, be excited by. Um, perhaps, you know, going into autumn, which is a time of change. It's like perhaps there's some more challenging things that we can get to people or we can learnings or educational elements that we can bring in. We've got like our music play festival that we present in that period of time, this idea of kind of like, yeah, transforming, you know, experience and mind. Winter, it's all cold and, you know, you want to be wrapped up in music and what kind of experience do you want to actually leave the house for? 
and when you're there, how do you want to experience it? So these things all feed into my programming and where things fit and where things fall. We obviously, you know, when you're in the international market, most people are in Europe during our winter, their summer. So think, you know, we look at summer because there's, you know, people are coming out touring. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of the bigger scale things come through there. I think it's really important to know where shows that you're presenting fit, where festivals fit, where everything kind of falls because the the season does go up and down. The other thing we consider, you know, we invite a lot of schools to do their presentations. That's always in September and August. So we know it's going to be, you know, quite a time for, for music fits around there. But yeah, there's a, there's always a flow and we're always considering how seasons influence audience experience and what type of music can fit in that space. So speaking of the kind of international tours and things like that, can you talk about co-shares with other festivals or spaces, how you can work MRC into a tour and how you go about negotiating those kind of shows or events? Is there kind of like a bidding war that you're going into (laughs) versus other venues to compete for certain shows? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes there's a... I mean, sometimes you know of the war, sometimes you don't. You're just talking straight to the agent and you're like, I've got yeah. this one and then it falls through and that's fine and you find out. But um, again, like in a festival, we always love to co-present with festivals. Um, and again, it's the thing about, you know, just the sum of two parts being better than just one of us. And then when you're working with a festival, it's like, what can we achieve that you alone couldn't do or we alone couldn't do? Um, and what could we do together? So you know, it comes with kind of joint investment to make something special happen. Like what we did with Rising, who helped invest in that show we had with Harvey Sutherland, where we transformed the venue into a dance hall. It's things like that, that, you know, you want to be a part of festivals and be part of things, but what's what could we bring that we wouldn't usually do outside our schedule as well to be part of that festival? But yes, there are always bidding wars and you might not know about them, um, but you've just got to put your best foot forward your best offer forward always for the artist if there's somebody you're really after um and some you know a lot of the time it's a two-way thing you know things will get pitched to us but we'll also chase things down that we really like as well has there been any absolute dream gig highlights for you at mrc like fist pump moments where you're in the office like yes i landed this artist (laughs) i've got them um i feel like that quite often that's good um and it's not always it's not always just because it's a big name or 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 something. I mean, obviously the the show I referred to before with Harvey that was incredible because somehow managed to convince the whole organisation to let us build an entire dance floor over the seating, um, <laughs> and turn the venue into a club, which is, you know, from a conservative classical music venue <laughs> to that, it's it's quite a journey. But you know, even just getting artists like Holly Herndon or Robert Henke, artists who are just like really innovative and exciting and are doing really strange, curious things. And to get them into our hall, which can be considered, you know, very rigid and proper and to get artists in there doing something else, that always gets me really excited. I'm like, yes, we're going to have this really, you know, they may not be the best selling shows, but they're the most interesting and exciting, I think. So the opposite of that, without naming names, unless you want to name and shame, (laughs) Has there been any experiences with artists or producers, you know, times where you've just thought, I'm never, ever working with these people again? <laughs> um, 
Or if people behave themselves because they're like, oh, I'm at the recital centre, I better People behave themselves. Yeah, people behave themselves. And sometimes it's almost too much when they're like, if, you know, if there's an artist on stage and they're like, oh, I feel like I'm in high school and I'm presenting and they, you know, they say that and then the audience all feels uncomfortable. But um, people tend to behave themselves in our space, which is fabulous, of course. (laughs) Of course, you know, there's always somebody who drinks maybe a little bit too much before or whatever, or perhaps, yeah an agent that's a bit pushy but I think in general that it's evolved I mean you know working on shows 10 years ago people were way worse behaved and now there's no room for it those artists or those agents just Mm. they don't exist in this market anymore or they've been pushed out because nobody wants to work with them so yeah I think all the you know the agents that we work with and therefore the artists that they choose you know we they bring along they're just better they're behaved. They're just you know, kinder and considerate and happy to be there. Well, I like to think yeah. people are a bit more grateful than they used to yeah. be. Just grateful to have a gig. Yeah. <laughs> well, grateful to have a gig. They should have gigs. People should have gigs. But just to be, you know, polite and kind um, and understand that, you know, we're all working in it together. So I think I think there's been like a – you can feel that cultural shift at least that it's changing and that um, it's not so much of a – I should be here and you should be paying me this. It's like how exciting we can do this together. Contemporary music but also classical and jazz are known to have issues in terms of gender representation. However, the program at MRC always features a really diverse mix of artists, which is something I've always noticed and really loved about the venue. Can you tell us how the centre navigates inclusivity in terms of programming? Yeah, I mean diversity is one of our main drivers in how we program. And it's really interesting being in a venue because we get 365 days to program content. And some weeks I look at the program and I'm like, wow, this is a real dude fest this week. But I have to look at the greater picture and go, oh, next week's Mm. like all female. How incredible or whatever. We're so lucky that we've got so much space and time to kind of program that we have to always be checking in to make sure what we're programming is diverse. And of course, gender is one of those main diversity targets that we actually track and count and follow and make sure that we're hitting um, a good gender um, parity, especially with not just the performers, but also the repertoire that we perform, making sure we're representing female composers in that classical space. Mm. And then, you know, all the other kind of diversity things come into it. Something that like the team and I always talk about is who are we missing? Because... The venue is meant to be representing Victorian music and international music. And are we actually showing the breadth of it all? Are we hitting all that market? And that's, you know, that's what keeps us going. And when we get proposals through to us, we're always looking like, what is the mix of what we're selecting? Um, And yet, who are we missing? Have we got, are we representing this group the best we should be? Are there people we should be talking to in certain communities who could bring different artists to us? You know, I can't represent a diverse, like I'm one person, you know, it's trying to find the right people to partner with to make sure that diversity is there. And so working with organisations that can bring us other cultural groups or, you know, festivals that can bring us different things um, is kind of the best way to do it, to collab with people. A space like MRC, it's really high profile in the public eye and the music community. Have you received a lot of commentary around programming decisions and how have you dealt with any negative feedback? It's interesting, yeah, we're we're a government-owned building. 
So we're, we're basically government and um, with that comes responsibility, but a bit of anonymity, like because we're kind of trying to program for audiences, we're not as biased as say, like I'm an artistic director who's got a full vision and it's just what I'm wanting and what I'm putting out. So there's not so much personal, it's not as personal. It's kind of a shared value system through the organization of what we want to achieve and it's shared through all of us, what we're trying to get to. And so the, any kind of negative press that would come back for our organization is kind of really taken on board. We're quite lucky. We ask a lot of, we do a lot of surveys. We do a lot of trying to capture information from audiences and industry. And we're really lucky that we're in this kind of space. That's, I guess that's the other thing We're we're small. We might be a pretty, you know, special little space, but we're not the art center who have got so many eyes on them from tourism, so much pressure on them to present such a diverse kind of arts offering. We're really lucky that we're just focused on music. We're only a thousand seater. We're never going to get bigger artists than can fit that space. So we can really be quite focused. um, And more niche. Yeah, more niche. And so we don't come out under as much scrutiny in that sense, because it's kind of like we we're just functioning as best we can in this little tiny world. Some people get annoyed that their program's not in <laughs> being presented and we ha- we do a lot of feedback to artists who we don't accept the proposals. We explain why we think that their show shouldn't be in and some are happy about it, some aren't. But we like to actually explain our choices as well. We're pretty transparent. We have reasons why we don't select shows because they're maybe not ready for it here yet or, or that diversity mix. We've just got too much of something at the moment and it doesn't fit, um, which is fine but Mm. it's good to be able to provide feedback so yeah transparency is really important in our choices when do you think an artist is ready to do a show in a venue like melbourne recital center yeah well you know as we said we've got those two spaces we've got the hall thousand seats and the salon 140 and both spaces whilst we're like pro kind of grassroots artists getting people up building audiences we still think that an artist should have had you know a fair bit of experience before coming to us just because of the presentation style that that you're under once you perform here. It's a unique experience. You know, it's a seated venue. Audiences are here to do nothing but listen to your concert. There's no bar. There's no other kind of background stuff going on. It's full 100% focus on what you're doing. So we have, you know, teenagers through development programs and stuff perform with us though. So we kind of look at all career part, you know, moments can come through. But we like to think, you know, the, the, the artists that we're presenting are at a kind of level where they're, you know, in the salon, it's local artists who are building their market. In the hall, you've obviously, it's a bit more challenging. There's a thousand seats to sell. So you'd want some market behind you, some experience to prove that you can sell good numbers. We're also looking at that full career path. So teens through development programs have performed with us. Artists in their 90s have performed with us, you know, so it's a huge, you know, breadth of where we're trying to get into people. But we and we like to support the artists that we come in through the salon program, especially it's kind of like a artist development program as well. So once you're selected in, we kind of work with you on things like marketing and helping you with grants and letters of support and all that sort of thing. So we're, you know, we're taking on you know, half the work with you to make sure it's developed. Hmm. So it's a real partnership approach. Yeah. 
So in terms of putting together a proposal for a show within MRC, is it fair to say something that is creating a unique experience that's different from other shows that you might be doing elsewhere would be an advantage? What are some other things that people could consider when developing a show that's kind of a bespoke offering for MRC? Yeah. I mean, we assess across a few criteria. One of them is, um, yeah, what is the experience and is it unique? Does it fit within the venue, which we mentioned earlier, like perhaps don't propose a 20-piece brass band to perform in the salon. It just <laughs> wouldn't work. It's just too loud. You know, like think of the actual mm. venue. Think of the venue and what can work best in that venue. The salon um, is fantastic when things are stripped down and the less is more really in that space. And, yeah, what is what is your program concept? Like what is your thematics? What are you thinking? What do you want to achieve with the, you know, the proposed repertoire you're going to play or, you know, is this part of – a little mini tour that you're promoting an album with, like what is going to be the special thing about it being in Melbourne and being in that venue. Um, and it doesn't always have to be, oh, great, I'm going to add some lights and projection, although it might be, but it, it's probably more about how, who am I going to work with? Who am I, how am I going to talk to audiences about this experience? What are people going to expect when they get here? And really think of like, yeah, that audience experience once they're here. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. From October to December 2022, the centre presents Season 4, Blossom. Featuring incredible indie rock heroes, alt country legends, humble singer-songwriters, super folk groups, ethereal choirs and much more, you don't want to miss a moment. Explore the season of live events at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash blossom. The last few years have been incredibly difficult for the live sector. Can you tell us how MRC navigated this time? Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the most difficult time really in the live performance scene for at least 100 years. Yeah, it's been incredible, hasn't it? Um, I mean, we were not alone in all of that, obviously. Everybody was going through it and we were, you know, grateful to maintain our jobs which was really lucky us our full-timers our casual staff obviously that was a lot harder for them but when you're working in programming and your entire purpose is to plan and to dream and to think in the future and to lock in things that are going to happen and to you know design experiences and that's all gone you're pretty much left with nothing except for rescheduling and rescheduling and cancelling and cancelling and cancelling and that takes I mean obviously it takes a financial toll on artists it takes a huge emotional toll on the team when everything you're doing is cancelling it's the complete opposite to what you are there to do and it was two years of paper shuffling really oh let's postpone your show to next six months when maybe we'll be back oh it's not back okay we're postponing it again for another six months and here's some more paperwork um yeah, it was really, really hard and, and it was really hard, you know, every day talking to artists who are losing their gigs. So we're hearing it 300 times over, you know, or, four, you know, 600 concerts we had, we're hearing that experience. So that was really hard. Our development team were incredible, though, during that period of time. Our marketing development team set up a local yeah. artist appeal fund um, to mm-hmm. support our local artists. So everyone who had a concert in the salon, 
were paid their guaranteed fee if, if their show was cancelled, which was fantastic. So that was a huge fundraising campaign that brought in quite a lot of cash from our incredible donors to support that. So they were busy doing that. Obviously, operations were <laughs> in a really hard place when their job is to put on the show and the show doesn't exist. That's even harder. There's not much else you can do. So yeah, it was really, really difficult. The return was really hard as well. The return was like a horrible whiplash. I think when, you know, suddenly we're open and go, 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 go. It was almost harder yeah. than just the quiet time because. I think it was too. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was stop start as well. It was stop start. It was like during that time there was huge staff turnover internally mm. and externally. So you whiplash back into it and then there's all these new people working going, how do we do our job? How do we put on shows again? How do I, or whoever you're talking to is like, oh, what's this clause in that contract mean? Or how does this work? And everything that you want to do was taking three times longer than it would in the normal thing. But you're having to go, 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 fill up the calendar, bam, 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 everybody wants a show. So that was really hard. And I'd say only in the last two to three weeks has that stopped. I feel like now people are in their roles, they know their jobs people have remembered how to put on shows things are slowly coming back and it's only starting to feel like okay we're back to planning things and people know what they're doing and we're back but yeah that was really hard that that flashback into it mm. and how did you cope because it is a really horrible thing to be cancelling on people and the uncertainty of the whole thing. I mean, did you have moments where you thought, I love the live sector, but maybe it's time to go back into policy or something else? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was like you, Chelsea. I was pretty busy, luckily, with a child. So personally, I could, you know, sign off at the end of the day and be like, well, okay, now I'm going to play with my newborn and have fun with a baby and maybe I don't really need work and maybe I'll just be a stay-at-home mum and (laughs) maybe that would work for me. Um, But, yeah, no, it was hard and it's – I think – I mean, I've always wanted to work where I'm working, so I'm really happy to be there and I wanted to get through it and see what was going to happen on the other side. But, you know, lots of colleagues left and tried new things and kind of made sideways moves as well just to – learn something new like to learn new faces or new processes or or something new and it wasn't that they had any problems with the job that they were in it's just they hadn't learned anything for two years and they were just stagnant yeah I had a mate that got a job at a festival in you know late 2019 and worked for the festival for two years but there was never a festival (laughs) (laughs) cancelled every year so She's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I worked for this festival. Never actually delivered Never a put festival. a festival. <laughs> I worked somewhere else. I mean. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've had staff that, you know, until we opened, had never done a show with us and had been there for two years as well. Like, it's it's wild, isn't it? That they, oh, I've never seen a show at MRC, but I've been working here for two years. It's crazy. I'd really like, if we can, to go back in time in your career. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about your time in Norway? Yeah, sure, Norway. I moved to Norway just on a whim because Norwegians, <laughs> I'd met a couple of Norwegians and they seemed really nice and friendly and it kept winning like the most livable country, the most livable city, Oslo. And 
I knew nothing about it and thought, well, let's go live there um, and check it out. <laughs> so just moved there and it was incredible. It was such a wonderful, I mean, I was in my early 20s and it was everybody there was so wonderful and so kind and friendly and we moved to Oslo and I started working at just like a this great live music venue there actually called Revolver. It's like a pub, a bit like the corner in the city and worked at the bar and then through that met some great people who were running a music festival called Hover Festival, which um, is kind of like a big day out vibe festival that they have in these incredible fjords. I mean, it's not big day out, like <laughs> visually it's not big day out, musically it was a bit big day out-ish. So managed to work on that festival and marketing and it was fabulous. It was such a good time. And it was just, you know, when you live somewhere else and you can kind of be whoever you want to be when you're overseas in your 20s. And I was so fortunate to just kind of fall into a really great creative group of friends who were all doing fabulous things and would just bring me along for the ride. So I had such a wonderful time there. And I think it was, it was probably the first time that I worked. Yeah, on reflection, it was the first time I worked in music, in the music industry, really. I'd always worked in arts or arts policy or, you know, market. And I always thought I'd work in theatre or something like that. And music just seemed too great to an option, like as if I'd ever work in music. Um, that's too cool <laughs> and too fun. But yeah, it gave me the experiences that ended up leading me into continuing to work in music. And how do you think that time influenced your work style today? Um, this, hmm, it's a really good thing. I think you just have to be a bit courageous, don't you? And I think when you're young and you, you, you know, you just put your whole heart into something and get involved and try new things, and it always works out quite well. Like you've, you can learn new things, and I think that's probably it as well. Always trying to challenge yourself, trying to expand, you know, don't get comfortable, think about what else you could be doing, you know, who else you could be meeting, living somewhere where, you know, their, their English is absolutely incredible. Of course, it's almost like their first language, but it was their second language. And so you live somewhere where you've got to get over communication. So you're just kind of meeting people and, you know, getting to know people, not through language immediately so I think all those skills come in handy yeah just putting yourself out there so you said you thought you'd work in arts and theater not music and you sort of accidentally got this gig doing media liaison and marketing for a festival in Norway I mean that sounds insane (laughs) (laughs) um yeah very lucky where does your music knowledge come from you know how does someone who grows up in Perth and works in policy yeah. end up at a festival in Norway and then programming manager of the recital center in Melbourne. <laughs> you know, how do you, where does yeah. the music knowledge come from? Are you from a musical family? I mean, my, my parents have always loved music and I've got, you know, behind me is half their record collection. Um, but I think I'm just a huge fan and have always been a huge fan of music and live music in particular, like, you know, always going to gigs and, everything. And as I said, it almost felt too close to me to be a career path. Just my love for music felt too, like, that's just who I am, part of me, as if that's something that you'd work on. It's just who you are. Um, 
not a player of music. And in fact, I probably did everything I possibly could to avoid my music lessons um, growing <laughs> up. <laughs> I did not like my music teacher and I tried my hardest to avoid that. But it was a huge regret now. But uh, yeah, so I've always just like been, you know, immersed in music like forever and I've loved it so much. And so, yeah, getting that opportunity to work in it, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. This is somewhere that I actually maybe I could work in music. And after Norway, I went back to the Department of Cultural Arts working in policy and, again, was very lucky on holiday in Melbourne, got offered to work on Melbourne Music Week and, of course, jumped at that opportunity as well. So kind of falling into the industry both times, it's very lucky. But I always feel a bit like a fraud thinking that I work in music still. Like <laughs> I still think, you know, I'm working in programming and it's music or, you know, I've still got this, I don't know, perhaps it's because I'm not a player that I feel a bit <laughs> like a fraud. It just sounds like imposter syndrome <laughs> and yeah, musicians exactly. feel that as well. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> great. Musicians, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. why am I booked <laughs> to play at Melbourne Recital Centre? Any minute now, Elle's going to say, I made a mistake. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think you're, you're alone in that way. So speaking of Melbourne Music Week, you were part of the team for over five years. What were some of your biggest learnings, do you think, from working on that program, which was a celebratory festival of everything Melbourne? It couldn't have been a better festival to work on for a Perth girl, honestly, coming to Melbourne <laughs> and... <laughs> it was interesting, a French yeah. woman and a... And a, <laughs> and a Perth, I know. And we came up against it uh, quite a lot at the beginning, for sure. We came up against that, that we weren't Victorians, but feel so lucky to have been able to get to know the industry so well through that event like all the venues promoters everyone it it's it it didn't just focus on one area and it tried its best to represent all of melbourne so yeah everyone yeah the people yeah. i met through music week it's you know it's incredible it gave me huge respect for the industry here and how hard working it is and how many people are involved and how many incredible people are behind the scenes doing stuff I love that event and I it's, you know, it's big within my heart. And actually I'm embarrassed as a poster behind me of Warehouse. <laughs> I just realised. I am so grateful to have worked on that event. It was a really, really incredible festival. And what do you think the biggest learnings were from that? Oh, from yes, that the time? biggest learnings. I mean, it's probably just just about the people. I think how collaborative work can you know, actually achieve some really great things. There's always somebody amazing in Melbourne you can work with to do something incredible in wherever, whichever area you want to look into, you know. Um, there's an expert on everything. And if you can work with them, then you're going to achieve some really incredible things. And I think that event also helped me in a programming sense understand like what our role is as a programmer and it's to deliver that unique experience to give people a really interesting experience both artist and audience because again that festival took a long time to like it, it really we really had to be strong on why it existed mm. and that was we really had to argue for it at the beginning because there's so many venues there's so many industry already doing fabulous things so why would a festival come in to do it yeah especially a council initiative yeah a council festival exactly like what yeah what purpose does a council festival have when there's already so much happening and I think you nailed it when you said it's a celebration but it's like a time to focus on things but it's also a time to take 
the resources of a local council mm. and do something that somebody couldn't do otherwise. Which makes sense. Yeah, when you you know, when you phrase it like that. Yeah, I think yeah. there's definitely some, you know, differing opinions on how you can celebrate music within the city of Melbourne when Melbourne is considered the live music capital of Australia and a key music city globally. So there is music happening every week and then all of a sudden it's, well, this is Melbourne Music Week and then it's like, well, isn't every week Melbourne Music Week? Yeah. Um, I think one of the really interesting parts of Melbourne Music Week was always the hub and where the hub was going to be and using different spaces to put on these unique experiences, which then, of course, is going to have this criticism of, well, now you've just invested all this money in setting up this pop-up venue that's mm-hmm. not supporting a venue that's doing the hard yards the other 51 yep. weeks of the year. Yep. But it was always this really unique thing, like come to St Paul's Cathedral or yep. whatever the venue space was, the the State Library and use these other spaces. So I feel like a lot of your career has been <laughs> programming in these spaces that people who visit Melbourne or live in Melbourne feel very connected to. Yeah. Oh, I've been so blessed to be in some of these spaces and put on shows where I've put on shows. It's wild to think about. And, well, how do you think space affects music? Yeah, it's it's so important. It's not just a gimmick. Like, it's not just like, hey, let's bring music into the library and ta-da, how cute's that? It's like this space, like you said, is really connected to people. People have got really strong feelings or, they, you know, they love the library, for example, or... Um, and to bring music into it and to bring that space alive in a different way is so wonderful. Like music can transform any space. It's it's not the space that's transforming the music. It's the opposite way. It's the, the music is bringing life to these spaces that haven't, you know, you haven't had the opportunity to kind of look at that space in that way. And so, yeah, like putting on loud music in a library, how incredible. And seeing how the library responds to that and how audiences respond to that is really amazing. Bringing music to a train station, like how incredible when we had Flagstaff, we had a party in Flagstaff station, like just some of these spaces are so amazing. And it's, yeah, it's two way. It's like, let's bring artists in who can really bring life into this space and to really like showcase this space in a different way. And then of course, how great for an artist to play in such a wild space um, and to try and make it sound good too. That was always a challenge. Yeah, do something (laughs) different. Yeah. You also worked on the Gertrude Street Projection Festival for a few years, which is a beautiful event throughout winter where you can walk down the street and see these some very quirky and some very beautiful projections along the street. I mean, how different was that for you to work with projection artists versus musicians? Well, yeah, yes. Well, I was actually lucky. So I when, when I worked with them, I mean, I did some marketing at the start with, which was all projection artists. Um, and then for a couple of years, actually put on a music program to align with the with the festival, which was really great. So obviously that brought in projection artists and combined projection artists with musicians. That event is so beautiful. It's so lovely and projection artists artists who use projection you know that's it is another huge kind of area in melbourne as well another wonderful group of people doing incredible stuff um and it just brings again it just brings people together that when that street is occupied it's just buzzing there's so many people out in the middle of winter it's raining it's freezing cold and everyone's there just to explore this kind of and that's the great thing about 
that festival was everything was kind of as you said quirky or unique or like hidden or you know you had to seek it out or you found these little experiences and I just love that mm. I love that kind of exploring art that you can find um I really loved working on that event and yeah projection artists gorgeous just lovely but different challenges finding projectors it's <laughs> like the artist, you know they're so expensive <laughs> yeah completely different from hiring backline and that sort of thing yes totally, yeah, absolutely totally. changing direction yeah. completely here but given the podcast you know we do talk a little bit about gender I'm wondering if there's been any times in your career particularly working in the music space where you thought you've been treated differently because you're a female oh for sure positively and negatively you know I've always been the young blonde girl in it well I'm not so young now but it used to be you know the young girl in the room that doesn't know what she's talking about vibe um and that was really challenge. that's always been challenging I've had big promoters yell at me on the phone about not accepting some of their shows and that I don't know anything and all that sort of thing um which you just know would not happen if a gentleman was holding the phone um or oh, yeah in the room. I think I've always been lucky to be surrounded by incredible female colleagues as well who, mm. you know, just taken it on the chest and, you know, been next to us through all of that. You know, sometimes it works in your favor because you can you know, you've got a creative way of thinking, you can juggle lots of things, you've got, you know, a great group, you can, you know, get close to your colleagues and not have to fight things out as much <laughs> or whatever, but yeah. I mean, gender always plays into what you, where you are. I think there's still an element of she's a young girl and she doesn't know what she's thinking, mm. talking about that's present. And how do you deal with a cranky, entitled promoter? Why don't you just book my show, Elle? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just book my show? Yeah, that's it's amazing, the entitlement that that comes with being an old white man. Those kind of conversations leave you shaky and stuff, but... I've been doing this long enough that I know why I make decisions and why, and I'm confident in being able to say, look, I only get to book 30 shows in the whole year. I don't have to book everyone that you tell me or anybody that you tell me. And I'm not going to book this person because this, this, and this. And then you just hang up the phone. <laughs> but, you know, you. I think you just talk those things out with friends and stuff and you get through it. And then, you know, that particular promoter pretty much sucks up to me now as well, <laughs> I think, after standing my ground after such a horrible conversation. And so, I mean, that's not the way to earn respect, to be abused. But, you know, as long as you can know why you're doing something and have confidence in yourself, those conversations aren't as hard as they could be. So it's interesting you mentioned confidence because that's something, you know, that, that does come up quite a bit in the conversations we have on the control podcast, where do you think you get your confidence from? Oh, well, you know, as I have confidence in what I'm doing, I'm maybe not confidence in myself, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I don't know. I think I've always just been surrounded by really great people who have, you know, family, friends who have said you do a good thing and that's built my confidence getting, making wins. You know, it's always great when shows go well and people like their experience or tickets sell, you know, that, that all helps with your confidence. Um, but they can't take it personally, as we were saying before, it's, 
know, sometimes it's a bit hard to know <laughs> what's going to sell. But I think just with experience comes confidence, doesn't it? With the more you do, the better you feel in a role. So do you celebrate the wins? Because it's just, you know, this constant cycle in a role that you have where it's just every day, every week, yep. it's rinse, repeat, you know, book show, deliver show, yep. do the reconciliation for the show, do the report, yep. next show, like, and, and you're in all yep. of those phases all yep. of the time. Like you're always, pro- you're always doing programming yep. and event delivery. If you're doing a festival, you've got a programming period and then a delivery period, and, you know, you're just in all of those stages continuously. So how do you ever feel like, you know, triumphant, yes, I nailed this time for a wine? <laughs> it's so true. It's such a different world to go from festival timings to a, a non-stop venue. It's such a, we're so guilty of not celebrating as much as we should and also not taking enough time to reflect on things that's something that I'm conscious of as well because we can you know definitely want to take time to celebrate but also take time to figure out what went well and what didn't but there's not much Mm. time you have to just move on yeah how do you do that it's hard you have to really carve it out you have to carve that time out I mean there's key moments in the year that you can reflect financial year for example (laughs) end of financial year end of budgeting Oh yeah, there's yeah. heaps of time for that. You know, you're like surrounded in receipts and stuff and you can reflect. But like, you know, what? you can actually see the numbers. You can take a moment to see the whole year of what you've done rather than just like, what happened this week? Yeah, but isn't blah, 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 blah. that depressing? Um, yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to look at your program and, and it's all just numbers because. No, no. I really hate that about, to be honest, like, yeah. the thing I really don't like about programming roles yeah. is the financial aspect of it, which I know is part of the gig, yes. but when you're just looking at numbers of how many people saw this show yes. and how many tickets sold and you've got a board of directors or whoever just looking at a spreadsheet. Yes. Whereas if they didn't experience all of those shows and some of them were really profound and amazing yes. and some weren't amazing shows but they sold a lot, it's like you, you can't just judge it all by numbers. You know? No, I completely agree with you. And it's true that that's quite often the only way it is judged, which is, you know, a bit rough. I mean, seeing shows, that's always a time to celebrate in a way like in a role like this you know you know you're planning you've done like seeing and show is you know you have to carve out time to even see the shows half the time yeah how do you have time for that (laughs) (laughs) how do you have you know like how do you kind of make sure that you take care of yourself and you don't have burnout you know you've got a young family a job with a lot of responsibility there's shows every night of the week I mean how do you ensure that you're still healthy and on top of your game you just yeah I mean you're always prioritizing and carving time out and figuring out what's achievable I mean we don't I don't get to see every show that I program sadly and um I read the reports afterwards and ask everyone I know who went to shows to see how they went and to understand but yeah you have to just you know see one or two shows a week Make sure you're like filling out that time, flexing time. We're very flex, like I'm in a good flexible working arrangement. So I still get time with my son and things. So it's just about, yeah, it's a big juggle though. It's such a juggle and celebrating wins is, yeah. We try and, you know, incorporate that into like little meetings, what's been good, what's worked and stuff, but. Bring out the croissants. Yeah. Bring out the croissants, bring out the Tim Tams, have a wine on Friday if anyone's in the office, you know. We don't do it as much as we should, but you're always just looking forward. Anyway, I'm always looking forward. It's I have to be in the headset where I'm, you know, mm. thinking it, the next thing, 
I loved how you described the role as it's a place for planning, but it's also a place for dreaming. Yeah. I loved that as a description of, of programming. It's, it's really true. Um, I have one more question for you, which was just, if you have any advice to share for someone who might be interested in a future career in programming or event delivery. Put on, put anything on, do put something on a party in your backyard or, uh, you know, it's the amount of rubbish events that I would put on doing random little things or booking a night at the tote with my friends' bands or trying to make up a magazine or something, you know, just do some things, your trial and error, but like think about what you're trying to create. But I think you've just got to start small and do lots of little bits and pieces all over, jump in, take opportunities, say yes to random offers to work at strange places. Go to Norway. Go to go to Norway. <laughs> go to Norway. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I really want to go. Yeah. It's so, so far away though. I haven't been back to be honest and it's just so far away, but I'll be back. Definitely do it. <laughs> Elle, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me on the Control Podcast. Thank you, Chelsea. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Elle Shantry in Control. For more information on Melbourne Recital Centre, head to melbournerecital.com.au. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Control through your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please do leave a review. It helps others to find the podcast. More information on Control and full transcripts for each episode can be found at controlpodcast.com. And please keep in touch. Follow Control Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. Send us a message. We love to hear from you. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Until next time, stay safe and be kind.